Welcome to McGonigal's Chronicles Making Montana Connections. I'm KRTV KXLH anchor Tim McGonigal. The lights are back on Broadway, and perhaps no one is happier to be basking in the glow than Helena native Kurt Crowley. From an early age, he seemed destined for artistic excellence. He was playing the piano with three, and instructors quickly discovered his advanced musical prowess. When he was 13, he earned a prestigious scholarship to a New Hampshire boarding school. He attended Harvard, studied in India, and eventually made his way to New York, where he's worked on some of the most successful theatrical productions, including an extensive stint as musical director for Hamilton. We recently talked about what he's accomplished and what lies ahead, and of course, his passion for big sky country. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kirk Crowley. Well, Kirk Crowley, it's good to, good to talk to you. Good to talk to another Helena, Helena guy, uh, even if you are in New York. Uh, but I, I, I know that you worked extensively and have worked, still work extensively with the show Hamilton. And I'm just curious, you've probably seen that show probably what seems like a million times. Do you find yourself, I've only seen it twice on the Disney Channel, but I love it. And uh, do you find yourself humming those tunes, even though you've <laughs> been a part of it for so long? Oh, you have no idea. I mean, it's it's certainly in in the thousands the number of times that I've you know been been at a performance, conducting, playing, and then if you add on top of that the rehearsal time, mm -hmm. teaching new members of the cast, teaching new members of the orchestra. Um, now I've, I'm involved, you know, because I started with the pre Broadway workshops, the sort of developmental workshops of the show. Went through several of those, then did the run off Broadway at the Public Theater and did the uh, run on Broadway for at least four years, I think approaching five years. And by the time I left the Broadway show, I had done it for about five years since the first performance. And then uh, and now I'm helping to set up the international companies of the show. So I spent three months earlier this year in Australia, setting up the show there with, a, with an all Australia, New Zealand cast, which is really exciting. And the show is, is set to open next year in Germany, Mm -hmm. in Hamburg, Germany, in translation, so in German. So I've also been helping to, to supervise that process. I leave in a couple of days to go finish the casting process in Germany. So all of which is to say, yes, this music has been a part of my life, uh, you know, inside and out for, for many years. So I wouldn't even say, you know, it's not sort of even the way you hum a tune that comes into your head. <laughs> it's sort of always there. It never leaves. Yeah. You know, it's like, a, it's like a house guest who they never arrive because they never left. They're always there. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Hamilton and some of the other work uh, in just a bit, but I want to go back to growing up in Helena uh, and your uh, love for music. I know that started at a very young age. I was listening to an interview and I think you were, what, four years old when you first started to, to play the piano. T talk about, talk about how, you, how you became involved in music and how it became such a part of your life. So, yeah, basically, I, I don't remember a time before there was music in my life. You know, my parents tell the story that they put me in an early music class and, you know, where we started off just matching a pitch and, and keeping a beat before long, that was uh, not enough to hold my interest at, let's say three years old. And so they started me on a piano because they had a piano. Um, this was long before my hands, my hands could span an octave or my feet could reach the pedals. And, um, and so by the time I really have memories, I was already playing the piano, taking lessons, sitting down every time I pass by it. I, I started with um, what's called the uh, Suzuki method, which is a sort of particular style of teaching that's heavily on ear training. And, you know, while I know people who've gone through that successfully, one thing 
that happened to me quite quickly is that I sort of wanted to tackle the whole world of music at once. And part of the Suzuki method is that they hold you back week to week until you've done a number of weeks on a, on a song. And so there was, you know, apparently a, a, a almost crisis where I was starting to lose interest and my parents, you know, instead of just saying, oh, well, he's clearly not interested in music, thought maybe this isn't the right way to go about it. So they switched me to another teacher who said, I'm, you can play any piece under the sun. And that was the real, you know, fuel on the fire. And, you know, I kind of never looked back from that point on. All right. And um, I, I know, too, that, uh, you know, growing up in Helena, you I, I think I read somewhere that you were also heavily involved in uh, Grand Street Theater. Is that correct? Yeah, probably around the same time. So this would have been, you know, pre-kindergarten or kindergarten, four or five years old. Uh, I started in the the Grand Street Theater program, which for those of you who don't know, is a, is a community theater um, in Helena, but that also has a very robust educational wing for, for kids really from K all the way up through 12th grade. And, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know what interest I'd expressed in theater, particularly I had an older sister and so she was going to be doing it. So why don't I, why don't I just join in? And boy, I think it was like, you know, it was like the first taste of, of a, you know, a drug or an adrenaline that, that never left my system. That first moment I realized there's a stage, there's an audience, there's this kind of light and focus that happens when a story is being told on stage. And I think it was addictive to me from an early age. Um, so I went all the way through the, the, the after-school program with Grand Street, but I think even more importantly than that, I sort of formed my whole community of friends around other people who were in that program. And so even when we weren't actually in theater class, you know, we were talking about shows, we were listening to Broadway soundtracks, they would come over to my house and I would play the piano, my mom would make a tray of brownies and we would sing, you know, sing through the vocal selections of Gosh, what at that point must have been, you know, shows like Phantom of the Opera and Les Miserables. And I remember Rent was a big one when I was in middle school. So those, you know, those shows, even though, you know, when I often say to people in New York, oh, I grew up in Montana, you know, it sort of feels like a very far, far away kind of distant mm-hmm. universe. And, and truly it was in a sense, but the two things I had going for me is that, you know, Grand Street Theater existed and because of that program made me aware of what was happening in New York because most Broadway tours even don't don't really stop in the state of Montana. They might go to Spokane or to Seattle. Sure. And the other thing is that my parents who had both grown up on the East Coast um, were very proactive about you know getting us to travel, taking my sister and I to see family and friends on the East Coast. And while we were in Boston, New York, seeing theater, seeing concerts and those kind of things really opened my eyes to experiences that aren't readily available in Helena. Yeah, and the, the Grand Street's still going strong after uh, after all these years, and that that, that music program and uh, that, that you talked about it's it's still very very well received in, in Helena too. Absolutely, you know, I mean, I, I I've gone I've gone back uh, on occasion to be able to sort of teach and, and work with mm-hmm. the students in it now, but I I keep you know co- close contact with the theater and the theater school. And I have a lot of great friends who are still working there and and really doing the incredible work of what made an impact on me at that age. They're having that effect on, you know, generation after generation. And so, you know, and, you know, this, this feels like an important time to mention that, especially coming out of a pandemic, you know, it's theater on Broadway, I think is going to be fine. Tourists will always come to New York and buy tickets, but what we really need to do is not lose sight of the fact that theater in every community and the arts in every community is just as important, if not 
more important than in New York because New York has, you know, somewhat saturated the market. But in a place like Helena, if you don't support the local arts and they go away, it leaves a big, big hole. So, um, you know, this is a good time to remind everybody that, you know, your local arts are there and they, they, they welcome you in and they need your love and support. Yeah. And I think especially for young people, uh, you know, you, you hear about budget cuts for school districts and school boards and stuff like that. And one of the first things that gets cut is, is, you know, the theater department or the arts. And uh, those are just as vital as, you know, sports and, and math and, you know, in the development of children. Right. Right. And as you say, even from a purely pedagogical viewpoint, I mean, the fact that every kid now has a phone connected to the internet means in a way, you know, you're circumventing when I was a kid and, you know, there wasn't a Broadway tour coming through town. I mean, now anybody can look up on YouTube a performance from the Tonys or from what happened last week. So there's more uh, availability to kind of get your eyes and ears on something, but that doesn't supplant the actually doing it yourself, which is the thing that really, you know, like arts can have a very healing and transformative effect on an audience, but those who are actually taking part in it, to, I feel like the experience is that much stronger. Whether or not you go on to have a professional career in the arts is one thing, but you know, even the students that I was at the theater school with in Helena who aren't you know, lifelong performers are lifelong audience members or maybe are better communicators because of that or are better problem-solving skills because of the improv talents they had or because they had to work backstage in a show and learn how to run props and that collaborative team nature actually taught them something about it. so you know there's so many more ripple effects besides just the people who are going to end up being performers okay uh this uh musical talent of yours also led you to the cook scholarship tell us what the what that is and how that uh, uh came about yeah the cook scholarship um which which exists to this day um specifically is a scholarship that sends uh students from montana or from and from only montana to go to this one boarding school in New Hampshire. Uh, it's just outside of Concord, New Hampshire, called St. Paul's School. And it was established by a guy named Frank Hervey Cook, who actually grew up at the Cook Mansion, which is now outside of Townsend. It used to be, I think, on the other side of Canyon Ferry Lake and was moved. Okay. Um, he grew up in the 19-teens, and his dad shipped him back on the train to go to boarding school. Uh, I think he started probably in around 1911-12 as the first former at St. Paul's, um, then went on to Harvard, and for all of his great education, you know, the, I guess made the smart move of marrying uh, an oil heiress 25 years his senior and inheriting a lot of money. Um, he then lived at the family mansion outside of Townsend. And, you know, I've, known, I've met people who knew him and he was kind of a recluse, sure. kind of a strange guy with his dogs and sort of kept himself. Um, and when he, uh, when he died, he actually was murdered by people who were stealing from the ranch. Um, they opened his will and he had set up uh, this, this trust to send kids from Montana to have the experience he did of getting their education on the East Coast. Um, and so uh, the program has existed now, gosh, probably 30 years and sent generations of kids to St. Paul. So when I, was, when I knew I was interested in the arts and you know, things that largely exist in big cities and urban centers, um, that, that was kind of my ticket <laughs> uh, to, to get there when I was in the eighth grade. I looked around and even the promotional materials from the school. And there were, you know, choirs singing in a Gothic chapel and people rowing on the pond and, 
you know, studying Thoreau and literature. And I just said, you know, this, this is, this is something that I want and went to my parents. They didn't, you know, they didn't ask me or force me to apply. I said, I, w- I want to do this. And they eventually relented and I applied and got the scholarship. So at age 13, after the eighth grade, um, I went to this boarding school and lived in the dorms, you know, a little dead poet society meets, you know, <laughs> insert other film there, but sure. Um, you know, and, you know, truly the educational opportunities were, were challenging and were a kind of challenge that I relished. Um, but again, it was sort of the, the milieu, the, the, the colleagues that I had, the other students who had, you know, grown up either in Boston at Beacon Hill or in Manhattan or in Hong Kong and just brought, you know, a very different kind of background than I would have found in Montana that, that again, kind of pushed me and challenged me to evaluate who am I? What do I, and I like music. Am I, do I really love music? Am I really that good at music compared to these other kids? And, you know, that kind of sorting that we all do in the high school years um, kind of was made that much more volatile by being in this kind of heady mix uh, of other, of other students. Um, But I think it, you know, it really, it really pushed me to, you know, identify the things that I loved and, and believed in and felt kind of core to me and also gave me the kind of fuel and opportunity to excel at them even more. Yeah. And I know that uh, you then uh, went on to, to Harvard uh, where you did study music, but it wasn't just music. Tell us, uh, tell us the other focus of your study there at Harvard. Yeah, I guess the, you know, the, the decision, I guess at the end of that was, you know, is music, is music enough of a, a draw for me that I would want to apply to like a conservatory, you know, and try to be a concert pianist or, you know, go to a place like a Berkeley, Indiana, Curtis. I mean, not that I would have gotten into all those places because those are very competitive schools, mm-hmm. but, you know, was it going to be all music focused? And uh, I actually had a teacher who really sat me down. He said, you know, I feel like you're interested in a lot of other things. He said, and I want you to really visualize, you know, being in a practice room six hours a day with a piano. And when I, when he actually put it that way, I was like, gosh, I don't know that that's really gets what's going to fill me up. Like I'm interested in, in language. I'm interested in history and culture and the world. Um, and so, you know, when I got into Harvard, which is certainly not a music school, but you know, it, it, by definition, um, it was sort of too hard to turn down that opportunity. So I arrived as a freshman, um, again, knowing that music was something that I loved. And I took a look at the music department and, you know, it was very good. There was a lot of good scholarship happening, but it's a pretty small department at Harvard. It's not, like I said, it's not a music school. So it's not a robust program with a lot of performance. So I kind of said to myself, there's, there might need to be something more than this, like going to Harvard and being, you know, purely a music major feels like a little bit of a, a a misstep. Like if that's what I do, I should have gone to conservatory. Um, So I kind of looked around and said, you know, what else is going to be kind of meaningful to me and, and push me. And as it happens, it was, um, it was shortly after nine 11. And so kind of reading the headlines every day, there was a lot about the U S involvement in the world and particularly involvement with the Arab world, with the Muslim world. And I thought, well, that's kind of something that feels a little bit cutting edge and important to now and interests me on all of these fronts, language, culture, history, religion. So um, I ended up double majoring in music and a program called comparative religion, okay. which is not really theology. It's more of a humanities discipline where you kind of try to learn what is religion, answer the question, you know, what are the practices? What do people actually do and how do they live more than just what are the tenets of, of, the, of the faith, so to speak? 
Okay. Um, and also, I know that after, uh, I guess, Harvard, you, you studied in India for was it five, six months. Uh, talk about how you, how you decided to go to, to India and what, uh, what you did over there. Yeah. So um, it, because it was a double major, I ended up um, writing, a, you know, the, the requirement is to write a thesis that combines those two disciplines, right? You can't just sort of stay on parallel tracks. So when I started looking around for, okay, what, what can combine music and religion, you know, there's a world of possibilities. Um, but my advisor, uh, Diana Eck, who actually is from Bozeman uh, originally, and, you know, another kind of Montana connection to have made yeah. out there in the, in the wide world of Harvard. Um, she said, she said, well, you know, it's gotta be, it's gotta be the Sikhs. Have you looked into the Sikhs? And I said, what's the Sikh? What's the Sikh? And so I did this kind of deep dive into, into the Sikh religion, which is based in Punjab in the India, in India. And essentially the whole, the whole um, basis of the faith is this kind of devotional use of music. And so it would be, you know, I often made the comparison for those who grew up in a, you know, the Catholic church or something. It's like, imagine that you replaced the, the scripture with the hymnal, right? So instead of a bunch of stories, it's a bunch of songs. And that's the kind of tenet. I mean, that's a, it's a rough comparison, but that's how important music is. And so when she said that, I was like, okay, great. I'll, I'll go to India and study the Sikhs. I wrote a proposal for a grant. And next thing I know, I was landing in Punjab and finding a teacher who was teaching me Hindustani music. I was learning Punjab, uh, Punjabi, sorry, the language. Um, out of books, I was going around visiting temples and studying uh, ragas and, you know, really had this kind of immersive experience, quite different than what would be the tourist experience of India, which is often a very kind of curated view, staying in hotels and visiting kind of monuments. I, you know, I was living with a family. I was going to temples. I was going to farms and places where, you know, real people are living and going through their lives. And mm -hmm. uh, it was challenging to be sure, but it was very eye-opening. Um, and although I have not actually been back in the intervening years, it's something that I think about on a very regular basis and, you know, it kind of forms this deep connection. You know, I often articulate it to people. It's like my whole, uh, you know, the globe, when you're growing up, the globe that's in your dad's office, you know, the whole globe changed for me because India yeah. previously had been this kind of thing. You had to spin the globe to find because, you know, Montana, hell, Montana right. is the center of the world. <laughs> Suddenly I was like, no, that's, it's been wrong that whole time. India is the center of the world. The U.S., all of North America, Europe are kind of out on the outer, outer fringe somewhere. Because when you're in India, the sheer mass of humanity, the sheer yeah. depth of the centuries and millennia and generations of language and culture, it just feels like, oh, no, this is the actual center of the world. Wow. Uh, it sounds like a, like a great experience. And uh, so you, you've got comparative religion, you've got music. And I think for you, it sounds like it all eventually came back to music. And that is still is such a part of your life. Uh, talk about how you made your way to, to New York, to Broadway, and uh, how that decision kind of came about. Yeah. So uh, at the end of the, the six months that I, or so that I spent in India, you know, I was, I guess I would have been about 22, you know, just out of school. And having followed that academic path, you know, I guess the logical choice would have been to apply to a PhD or a doc, you know, doctoral program in ethnomusicology and kind of continue down that field. And I had a bit of a sort of crisis of faith coming back from that because the one, while that experience had been great, the one thing I hadn't really done was touch a piano, play music. I mean, I was learning to play Indian music, but I was not, certainly not good at it. 
Mm. Um, and so I thought, gosh, this is checking a lot of boxes for me, this academic discipline, but I'm going to spend the next six or seven years doing field work, making recordings, writing articles, writing papers, writing and defending a dissertation. And at the end of that, I'm going to be 30 and I might not have, again, touched a piano for 10 years. <laughs> and that just didn't sit well with me. I said, you know, that feels like it can always come later. Let me kind of go back a little bit to how I started, which was at the piano with singers, with, you know, kind of collaborating, like making music, putting into practice all the life lessons into actually playing. Um, and so I had a bit of a sort of like, well, I had to fall back on music, which is often the opposite of what parents tell their kids. <laughs> music is not the fallback. Uh, something else would be like doctor or lawyer. Um, and so I was living in Portland, Oregon for a brief time and uh, just kind of started cold calling theaters, regional theaters, because I'd grown up in a place like Grand Street. And eventually one of them hired me to play for a show. And I watched this, this guy who was the, the music director and he would sort of get to interact with the band and then he would go talk to the dancers and then he would coach the singers and then he would talk to the director. I was like, well, that's a cool job. That person gets to interact with everybody. So long story short, I said, I'm going to try doing that. And I did a couple of shows in Portland and then I kind of told myself, let's get, let's get real here. If you want a music director in theater, you don't stay in Portland. You go to New York city. That's, you know, I knew this from when I was a kid, listen to those Broadway recordings. That's where it happens. Um, so about just a, just almost 11 years ago now, I showed up in New York um, with a few connections and friends who helped me kind of get those first kind of crucial feet in the door. And um, you know, it's a little bit, the rest is history within the first six months of being in New York. Um, I got hired to do uh, a production of In the Heights, actually this okay. poster that's here on the wall sure. behind me. Um, <laughs> and it was the second national tour and I got hired to be the conductor of that. And, you know, that, that is a little bit the rest is history. That was where I made a lot of professional connections, um, you know, obviously with Lin-Manuel and yeah. Alex Lacamoire and Tommy Kale. It's also where I met my husband, who I've been with for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so that that felt like a, the right decision um, in hindsight, having, you know, decided to, and funny enough, like the first thing I had to do when I was hired for In the Heights was learn how to play Latin music, which is not something, if you grew up in Montana, you're exposed right. to a lot. <laughs> and so right off the bat, this whole kind of academic discipline of ethnomusicology, how do you understand another culture and its music immediately came into play. So the second I had sort of closed that door and said, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead the two things were side by side yet again. And that's kind of continued to track throughout the 10 years I've been doing this. Yeah. Kurt, you sound to me like someone who has no problem stepping outside of their comfort zone to try something new, uh, whether it's Latin music, uh, going to India. It, it, it just seems like uh, you're ready to take on these challenges and you, like, like you said, you relish them. Well, I also think that's, you know, it's a different world than I think my parents' generation grew up in where you had to be really good at one thing. And if you were good at one thing, that gave you job security, financial security, uh, sense of self-security. And I think, you know, when I look at the difference from their generation to mine, like the world changes a lot faster, you know, it kind of reinvents itself every couple of years, if not every couple of months now in the last pandemic. And so I think that it's a more vital skill right now to be able to constantly adapt, evolve, add a new skill set, right? So, okay, I can play the piano. I play classical music. That's what I started doing. If I can then keep that 
ball in the air, if I'm using a juggling metaphor, and you're going to add, you know, salsa, Latin music in there. Great. Okay, good. Now I got those two balls in the air. Now, okay, now what about hip hop? Here's a, here's a show about the founding fathers that use the language of hip hop. You know, well, not, again, not something that I had a lot of experience in, but if someone gives me that opportunity, you know, I'm going to do a deep dive on all the 90s hip hop artists and, right. <laughs> you know, kind of absorb that style and, you know, best I can show that I can, um, can perform it in front of thousands of people every night. And I think that is, um, like you say, it is stepping outside of your comfort zone. And so it involves a little bit of risk and a little bit of fear and a little bit of mitigating your own expectations and the voices inside your head. But it feels like that is as crucial a skill. It's as crucial a skill as being really good at the first thing is the ability to then pick up a new side of it. And, and it honestly, it gives me access to a lot more people and rooms and the people in those rooms, which I think is, you know, a kind of side um, benefit of all of all the story, you know, I've been recounting to you from St. Paul's to India. It's mm-hmm. like, at the end of the day, while I still consider myself a Montanan and a kid who grew up in Helena, it's been the access to all of these different rooms and people and lives and cultures that has kind of added the enrichment to that you know the sort of the extra the, the extra flavor is on top of that base you know it doesn't change who i am fundamentally but um it's yeah i guess it's the reason we're talking today that's the reason why there's kind of a lot of other layers uh, in there yeah uh, i was just looking at at your bio on your website kurtcrowleymusic.com uh i i see in I believe it was maybe 2017. I'm not sure, but you did work on an arrangement at the the Kennedy Center Honors, and you said that for you that was a a huge honor for yourself. Tell me, tell me why that is. Yeah, you know, for as much as we talked about Broadway, like I always the Kennedy Center Honors when it was on TV, which uh, you know it almost always would air. I think right around Christmas. Yeah, and that to me was just that was the biggest and grandest and most special stage in the world. You know, forget any you know Broadway at least there were multiple shows running on Broadway. The Kennedy Center Honors was a singular thing. You'd see that the curtain go up and the stars take that stage. I mean, stars of, you know, movies and literature and music and, you know, all the greats in one place. And so, yeah, I think it was 2017 when I got the invite to, to be, you know, a, a small part of it. I did um, dance arrangements for one of the, the segments. Uh, um, you know, I, I, I said, yes, I will make it work. Whatever I have to do schedule wise. I think I was still doing Hamilton at the time. And it was a crazy experience, but it completely lived up to that sort of childhood hype. Crazy because if you could, you know, the one thing I hadn't counted on is if you take all the most star-studded and fabulous people in the world and put them in one thing, they're also the busiest people in the world. And so you only get them all in one room for like a very, very limited amount of time. So to put together a show that big and complicated with people who are incredibly busy and incredibly in demand. Um, means that it all happens at the very, very last minute. And so it was stressful for a lot of those reasons. Um, but gosh, the, the, while the show was going on, I remember there was a backstage green room, you know, and I would, I walked into the little roped off green room and there's um, Quincy Jones and Stevie Wonder and Caroline Kennedy and Meryl Streep and all in one room. It was just, wow. I, my mind was completely blown. Um, and, and I was just, you know, thrilled to be some small part of it. Yeah, that's what I, as a as a sports fan, would liken to going to batting practice at the Major League All Star Game and seeing some of the all time greats. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, it's yeah. the All Stars. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I also noticed uh, that there's a new uh, pr- uh, 
show coming up on Netflix. It's a, a movie, I guess, called Tick, Tick, Boom. And you're the executive music producer of that. Can you tell us a little bit about that and uh, what viewers can expect? Yeah, so I'm very excited for the film, which comes out uh, only in a number of days now. It'll be um, in select theaters, but on, on Netflix. And the, the story of the film is about uh, kind of the life of Jonathan Larson or a piece of life of Jonathan Larson, who most people know as the composer of Rent. Um, Tick, Tick, Boom is uh, a show that he put together when he was living in New York in the early 90s, kind of during the time he was writing Rent, an aspiring musical theater writer. But being a musical theater writer is hard, if you didn't know, <laughs> and it's competitive and it's uh, demoralizing, but it requires so much um, inspiration and effort and perspiration and thought. And so in order as a kind of outlet for what it was like to be him, he wrote this, what he called a rock monologue called Tick, Tick, Boom, which is sort of about the, the title refers to the seconds ticking down until he turns 30. And he feels like if he doesn't, if he doesn't hit it big before he turns 30, he's missed his window because Sondheim and the Beatles were famous before they were 30. So that's the tick, 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 ticking clock. Gotcha. Now the, the, the sad kind of subsequent reverberation of that is that, you know, he did write this show rent that got a production off Broadway at the New York theater workshop. And the night of the first public audience, he died of a, a heart a kind of rare sort of heart infection in, okay. in his mid thirties. And so while for him, the title Tick, Tick, Boom was about turning 30, you know, the sad long view is that, you know, his life was always going to be limited or was going to be limited. And he would never actually see the benefit of all the, you know, global success that Rent would bring to him. Um, and so this, this rock monologue was eventually turned into an off-Friday show in the early 2000s, where they kind of added a little bit to the arrangements and made it a three-person show, but it's still somewhat autobiographical. Um, but that was it. It never ran on Broadway and it had a little bit of kind of a cult following around musical theater people because they'd go, oh, Rent is so brilliant. What else did this guy write? And you'd kind of discover this show, Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, so eventually the, the Larson Estates, and you know, we want to make the movie about Jonathan's life and we want to make it Tick, Tick, Boom. And uh, the pair of the story I've heard is that they called uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, you know, another young songwriter who struck it big in his thirties and said, Hey, who should, who do you think should direct this movie of Jonathan Larson? And Lynn said, me, uh, <laughs> he'd never directed, he'd never directed a movie before. So this is his directorial debut. Wow. And so Lynn brought along um, a lot of the collaborators he's worked with on other things. So I had worked with him, not just on Hamilton, but on the in the Heights movie, Okay. Uh, along with the two other executive music producers, Bill Sherman and Alex Lackmore. So the three of us kind of got together um, to work with Lynn on making this movie a reality, which we shot. We were, we were eight days into shooting when the pandemic shut everything down in March of 2020. Oh, so thankfully, our producers and Netflix were able to, God knows how, get the production back up during the pandemic. So we finished shooting in October through December of 2020. So pre-vaccines even, I mean, it was all PPE and testing mm -hmm. all the time in order to be able to just get on set, but we managed to do it. And I'm just so proud of the music. And, you know, it really tells a story apart from just the story of Jonathan Larson. It tells the story of every artist kind of realizing that nothing is promised, right. you know, that, and especially having lived through 18 months of the arts being dark and theaters being empty and audiences being kept at home. Uh, it, 
I think the message is very strongly felt that, you know, nothing is promised. And um, I think it's going to be a beautiful film. Sure. Okay. Well, you mentioned Lin-Manuel Miranda, and I think a lot of people think of him. They think of Hamilton, uh, which you, have, again, have been a big part of. You've been a music director for that. Uh, uh, why do you think Hamilton is uh, touches so many people and reaches so powerful for, for so many? Well, I think, I mean, the, yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a good question we could talk about for hours or, or sure. write books about. I think, you know, the, the sort of, I guess, ob, the, 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 the easy, the low-hanging fruit answers are, you know, that it's a show about a multi-racial, uh, multicultural America that celebrates diversity, celebrates immigrants and the contribution of immigrants. And, uh, you know, because it came out in the Obama era and was celebrated for that. And then, you know, beyond that has been seen as kind of a an aspirational representation of America. I think all of those things are true. I think the fact that it uses the music uh, of hip hop, which was largely created and say, maintained and sustained and popularized by black and brown singers and immigrants and artists, African-Americans um, is, is important and bears a, you know, a, it, it goes a little bit of what needs to be a long way to sort of acknowledge that part of America's history. It's particularly when talking about the founding fathers, but I think that the answer people don't get to a lot of the time is just, it's really well-made. It is a really well-made piece of theater because there's a lot of good ideas out there that would do something kind of flashy, like, you know, uh, in, you know, uh, colorblind casting or whatever, whatever sure. the phrase you'd want to use is. But I think that gets, that obscures the fact that it's just a really well-made piece of theater. Like these are people who really understand, have spent their life studying how theater is made Mm -hmm. And when they all got in a room together to collaborate, um, kept their eyes on the prize. It was not about ego. It was not about whose idea wins out. It was not about who's right and who's wrong. It was how do we make the best thing to tell the story? And that was what I got to witness being in the room where it happens, so to speak. I mean, there were moments where, you know, Lynn, Lynn himself would have written this like incredible rap that done, done by uh, Hamilton against John Adams and, he wrote these incredible rhymes and he got to deliver it as Hamilton. And when we were off Broadway, you know, the decision was made, you know what, we need to cut that. The show's running long. It loses momentum at this moment. And Lynn, not instead of saying like, what do you mean? We're not going to cut this. This is my best rap in the show said, okay, let's cut it. <laughs> and it ended up on the cutting room floor. And wow. those kind of decisions, while the public doesn't see those, those, those are the hard things that make a really great piece of art. And so I think that is really, as much as the idea is catchy and, and provocative, I think it's, it's just one of the best made pieces of art I've ever been around. Yeah. Well, Kurt, uh, we're running out of time here, but I wanted to ask you about uh, coming back to, to Montana, how often do you get back? And it's, it's gotta be uh, nice to, Nothing wrong with New York, but I, I'm sure it, it's it's great to get back to Montana when you can. What what do you what do you like about Montana? What do you miss about Montana when you're away from it? Oh, great! Um, yeah, I do. I absolutely love Montana. My my folks are still there. They mm -hmm. you know they still live right next to the house I grew up in. Um, we we come. My husband and I try to come at least twice a year. You know, I try to do at least one trip in summer, one trip in winter. He's uh, he's from Cuba, so Montana, you know, was different in a lot of ways. <laughs> he resisted coming during the winter because he was just afraid of how cold it would be. But now he now he gets how beautiful winter in Montana is and can sure. be. Um, so I love that it it 
is a place that we get to share and that I can sort of introduce him to. Um, obviously, we love being outside. The last couple of summers, we've done this trip on the upper Missouri uh, with this great outfit out of Helena. And they, you know, they take you for four or five days really into the wilderness. You know, there's no roads, there's no telephone poles, there's no cell phone service. And even having grown up in Montana, it was it was the scenery that I didn't know existed. The white cliffs, you know, outside of Fort Benton and the Badlands. It just continues to always amaze me. I love, you know, I always think of that, um, the the phrase, gosh, I, um, the author's name is escaping me right now, but the, the, where the phrase Montana high, wide, and handsome comes from. He was a Missoula professor, K. Ross Toole. Okay. And and the, there's an epilogue to to one of his books that um, just describes Montana as a place where, you know, the the timelessness is is never far away. You know, you see the cattle kind of loaming down as the mist is rising off the river and it just feels like it could be any century, any, any millennium, any place. And that's certainly not how New York feels. New York is a up to the minute, the billboards, the traffic, the, the updates, the noise. And I love that sort of timelessness that Montana has. Of course, I love the people. Also, I love the, you know, the, the, the small town communities, the Mm -hmm. way people look out for each other, sustain each other in, um, you know, in, in, in difficult times, in rough weather, <laughs> in a uh, fire season. Sure. And, um, and so, you know, I, I, I try to get back as often as I can and try to introduce my friends from New York to a, a place that they've heard of, but is even more beautiful than they imagined. Great. Kurt Crowley, pianist, music director, arranger, and uh, just an all around great guy. Thank you so much for, for all you've done, especially putting those, uh, songs from from Hamilton sticking those in our heads. <laughs> I appreciate that, Tim. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a conversation with Helena native Kurt Crowley, an accomplished pianist, music director, and arranger. You can learn more about him and see more samples of his incredible work at KurtCrowleyMusic.com. Tick, Tick, Boom appears in select theaters November 12th and will stream on Netflix November 19th. I invite you to subscribe to McGonagall's Chronicles wherever you get your podcasts and rate the podcast and leave a review. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. And I'll be back soon with another guest with a Montana Connection. Until then, for McGonagall's Chronicles, making Montana connections, I'm Tim McGonagall.